Hello again. Um, well, we are all celebrating the 4th of July here together. And um, for Buddhists, uh, it's even a bigger celebration than that. Um, tomorrow is the Asala Puja Moon Day, the full moon of July. is one of the three major holidays in Theravada Buddhism. And what it signifies is the first teaching that the Buddha gave, the turning of the wheel of the Dhamma. And uh, it's also the beginning of our... uh, On on, um, Monday, we'll begin the the Vasa, the the Rains Residence, here at the Vihara in the Redwoods. The um, the topic I want to um, talk a little bit about today is about the Dhamma, what's Dhamma and what's not Dhamma. Uh, a few examples have shown up lately where there's um, it's a little hard to sort out. So right now, especially with the pandemic, um, many people are listening to a lot of different teachers. And oftentimes, especially here in the West, um, Dhamma gets mixed with a lot of other things, um, particularly psychology. And of course, there's a really, uh, there's value in psychology and the way that it helps us perhaps establish or regain our mental health, help us cope with life, become more skillful in some ways. But it's not, it's, and it may have elements of Dhamma in it. I know my experience with therapy was once I knew about the Dhamma, I realized that everything that had worked for me in therapy was actually also in the Buddhist teachings. <laughs> so you can find Dhamma there. But it's not for the purpose of teaching liberation. It's for the purpose of uh, having a happier life. And the the purpose of religion, I think, in general, isn't so much about, well, it helps us have a happier life but it also is has the aim of ushering us into the next life safely. And the Buddha was certainly focused on liberation, the complete ending of suffering. And what it takes is turning away from much of what uh, worldly views would have us pay attention to. So I want to just talk about some examples Um, So psychology is one thing that gets mixed in. Other traditions also get mixed in to what the Buddha taught originally uh, that we find in the early Buddhist teachings. And then views and uh, other other aspects of other religions and the the traditions of the cultures that um, people are in and Someone recently said to me that before she really understood the Dhamma, she's uh, Vietnamese, and and she had, she said her her way of relating to 
the temple was to go there and pray for what you want. That it's all about getting what you want. And then when she really learned about the Dhamma, she saw that it was very different from that. So there can be all these things that are kind of mixed together. And I thought I'd talk a little bit about what we would see in a Dhamma talk that would actually be Dhamma and how to tell when it's other things. For example, we have you know, people relying on models that are made up um, in the world. And there's a real distinction among early Buddhists. Um, we really think that we really feel confident that the Buddha wasn't making up his philosophy, but actually experienced the way things work. And so that's pretty different. So just, you know, the kinds of things we see um, that are helpful, models or observations or ways of explaining human behavior. Like, uh, you know, Joseph Campbell probably was the one with the hero's journey or however that came about, kind of explaining uh, some kind of experience human beings go through or recently... Um, again, hearing about stages of grief. Uh, you know, these are things that people are working with that are more worldly. The Buddha didn't teach these things. From the Buddha's perspective, we don't have to go through stages of grief. And, you know, it's just a, it's a different way of understanding life and the point of life and the way to work with what happens in human life. So I wrote down a few notes. And one of the themes that we should always look for is what the Buddha actually taught in that first teaching that he gave. And it's the Four Noble Truths. So when we, when we put things in the context of the Four Noble Truths, whether it's something we personally experience or it's the coronavirus and how it's affecting the world, First thing is to notice the suffering and then to look for the cause, which is some kind of attachment or clinging. And then by letting go of that, cessation of suffering. And of course, the, the, noble, tr- the noble truth of the path. And th- this is not the approach that's taken in a lot of discussions or in a lot of even Dhamma talks. You can hear Dhamma talks even by people in robes with shaved heads, um, and it may not be Dhamma. So it's good to know what is and what isn't. So in the Four Noble Truths, it's, we turn towards the suffering. It, almost everybody's got that one figured out, that you don't get very far by trying to suppress those experiences. So we have to turn towards it. But then when we do, it's not about deep examination of that suffering, perhaps, maybe a little, maybe some, to, um, to understand where, we're, where the clinging is. But, you know, like it wouldn't be stages of grief and how we need to go through it and learn from it. 
It would be grief is suffering, and it is to be abandoned. The cause of that is to be abandoned. So the whole view that I've lost something or someone that is mine. Now, this doesn't mean that we should suppress, never suppress feelings that arise because of loss. We want to be with them, but we want to make sure we don't cling to them or hold on to them or think, this is my teacher. Same with the coronavirus. We're hearing all kinds of stories that we're generating about how, I mean, I've heard people say that this is here to teach us, this is here to change us, this is here to, uh, you know, provide some kind of larger intelligence that the coronavirus has a soul. And I have one friend who's insistent upon this this idea. And it's like the Buddha would say, this is disease, this is normal, this happens. This is what's part of samsara. This is, yes, we can learn from everything. We need to learn from everything. But what we learn has to be like in accord with the truth and in accord with Dhamma. What we learn is that this is part of nature and our clinging, our expectation of health, our expectation of being alive, of having comfort, of getting things to, the way, to be the way we want, this is where our suffering comes. And so if we, if we think in terms of um, how bad it is that this has happened to me, then it brings the mind down. We can stay in that kind of state for months or years. But if we look at things from the perspective of this is a natural phenomenon, that the suffering comes from the clinging, it's a hard reality, but love is suffering. The kind of love we like have for people where we are, you know, they, we feel something is lost because they pass away. This kind of love is suffering. The Buddha said, one love, one suffering, two loves, two sufferings. You know, when we love someone in that way that is somehow feeding us, somehow we're depending on that, clinging to that, then when, when they pass away, we feel like something went wrong. But this is not the way to look at it, according to the Dhamma. So when I hear Ajahn Brahm's story, which he's told how many thousand times, of when his father died when he was 16, he didn't cry, he didn't grieve. He felt happy that he had his father for 16 years. And this is the approach. It's to look at the good. How, how much good there is in the situation, even if the suffering is also there. That makes sense. It's very hard to grasp this because it can lead to depressing our feelings or feeling guilty about them, which is also not correct. Feel what we feel. Be present with it. Understand it and let it go. And so it's... Um, it's important when we're listening to people talk about what if you know supposedly Buddhist teaching or maybe others where's the dhamma in it and what is being misrepresented or is it represented accurately is there a is there a, a teaching of liberation in it 
of transcendence. Um, you know, is is it possible to inspire the heart to keep our our attention on the goal of freedom from suffering? And and the the beauty of the development of the heart in that process to love without that clinging, without that expectation of I'm getting something out of this, something of mine or me. You know, when we really love each other in that way, then we can care for someone no matter what they're going through. And it's um, a very different attitude. And it, in the Dhamma, you'll see renunciation. And that's something that um, is hard to come by sometimes, especially when people are teaching from the perspective of lay life. It's like renunciation is really letting go of the sensual world. It's not about trying to enjoy it more or make it better. It's seeing that the true freedom is not by not by getting our desires satisfied, but by not having desires. And so ren- renunciation, that our freedom really comes from restricting ourselves by by following a code of ethics, virtue, precepts, by letting go of our attachments. In the Dhamma, there will be talk about virtue and there will be talk about giving, that our life really becomes about giving and not about what I can get. Um, when we are coming from the position of what we can get, we will suffer. And finally, I think what is important for us as practitioners is that we start to understand what our mind is like when it's happy and pure. And what I mean by that is those times when the defilements are at bay, that they're not present. And when we practice and we really um, make the body tranquil and the mind tranquil, where we see our pains, our, our sadness, our despair, our depression as suffering that we can look upon with compassion and look beyond it, see the bigger picture, that mindfulness is used to give us a stable ground to view our experience and put it into context. It's not there so we can be better at doing our work or better at doing sports or better at, as you know students or whatever else the world is trying to, to promote through mindfulness. <clears throat> that mindfulness is there to really help us see things as they actually are. And so those moments, those times when the mind is free, free from clinging, free from longing, even when we were in the meditation and I started, uh, at some point I mentioned what the Buddha says, 
is a precursor of practicing mindfulness. It's letting go of any longing or dejection about the world, any desire or aversion about the world. You're in a space of not clinging, in a space of not desiring, wanting, or wanting to get rid of. And when we're in that kind of space and we can really feel the purity of our energy, the purity of our mind, we should make note of that. And this is what we're moving towards all the time. That if we have to be reborn, wherever that is, <clears throat> in the world, in the human realm, in the deva realm, wherever that is, that the more we experience this kind of purity of mind, complete peacefulness, the better that situation will be and the closer we'll be to real liberation. And we keep moving in that direction. And to not get caught up in a lot of the proliferation that goes on in the world, the stories that, that we tell, the stories that people tell, which stories are helping liberate the mind and which stories are holding us back. And so I just want to invite reflection on this so that we can really come back to what the Buddha actually taught. It's not easy. It goes against the grain of the world. It goes against the grain of our desires. But it's so fruitful and freeing. And if if people are teaching the Dhamma, they should be happy. Otherwise, it may not be working in the right way. <clears throat> and so this happiness is something that we should um, pick up on. Um, it's contagious. So I think that's probably the limit of my reflection, and I'm interested in hearing your thoughts.